Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I wanted to start uh, by, by sharing a bit of a, a personal story. Maybe some of you could relate to this. When I, um, when I was about, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere around that age, you know, before I had entered my teenage years, I suppose, um, I used to think that uh, because I had grown up in church, because I had um, said, this, you know, said the prayer to accept Jesus as my Savior as a four-year-old, I had, I, I had this, like, this um, misconception that I didn't have a testimony, that I didn't really have a powerful testimony. I used to sometimes even be jealous of people who had this like, great testimony of being you know, oh, I was doing this, I was using crack, and I was, you know, selling drugs on the street, I killed a man, and then Jesus saved me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if any of you uh, could relate to that. I felt like I just didn't have a testimony. And, and I don't know what was wrong with me. Because the fact of the matter is that we all have a testimony, don't we? We all have a debt that we can't pay, just like the servant in the story. You know, the fact, is, the fact of the matter is that I lied, I lusted, I worshipped the praise of my peers. I made much of myself. I valued people according to what they could offer me. I chased after accomplishment and worldly treasures like material wealth, fame, success, and pleasure. I did all the things. I had a testimony of how God had forgiven my debt. I have a testimony of how God's forgiven my debt. We all have a testimony, a deep inner need for God's grace. In, in today's passage, I, I believe we come to the story of a man who lost sight of his testimony, a man who lost sight of the debt that he had been forgiven. We've been uh, studying Jesus' Sermon on the Congregation uh, we're, uh, we're to the end of it today. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, just a little context. Remember Jesus and his disciples, uh, they've been on a journey to Jerusalem. They've been around the area of Galilee and now they're headed south to Jerusalem. We've seen Jesus assemble his church. Remember the, the first time the word church was used was in Matthew 16, it's used twice there. We, he, he established his church upon what? Upon the confession of Peter. Peter said, Jesus, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, upon this confession, Peter, I will build my church. Then in verse 17, we saw God the Father anoint Jesus uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. God the Father agreed with this proclamation. Jesus is the Messiah. And now Jesus has come down the mountain and he's forecasted his own suffering and death. This is the second time that he's told his disciples, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect from the dead. And now he's stopped a bit along the journey to Jerusalem and he's, he's telling his disciples what it looks like to be his church. And this is where we find ourselves. Uh, this chapter of Matthew, it could be its own little mini-series in, in a series I've titled uh, here and there, uh, what kind of church is this? Anyways, you remember that slide? I've, I've given a few of those. What makes this church uh, what it is? What do we believe? How do we do church? That's what Jesus is saying. What kind of church is this? Anyways, this is the way we relate to one another. And so this is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Congregation. So let me recap real quick the sermon because the sermon has lasted us several weeks and maybe you got distracted by the resurrection message last week. But in the first story, we had the temple tax story, right? And in that story, we learned that there's freedom from law. Jesus said, you don't have to pay the tax. 
but there's also freedom to love others. And so Jesus taught Peter to pay the tax anyways, not out of uh, obligation, but out of that freedom to do what was maybe best for those around him. And then in the next story, we had our friend Andre come. And remember, Andre taught about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Andre said, who's the goat, the greatest of all time? This was the question that the disciples were asking Jesus. And Jesus said, the greatest is he that becomes like a child. And we learned that humility is the highest value in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of his heavenly father. And then the next passage was about the stumbling block. Remember the stumbling block with the millstone? And we learned in that passage that if we don't take our sins seriously, we can cause others to sin. And so we need to do war against our own sin, first and foremost, so that we don't cause others to stumble. And then there was the lost sheep passage, where we learned that Jesus pursues the lost in his community. He's even willing to leave the 99 secure sheep in order to pursue the lost sheep among us. This is amazing news because we learned about the love of our Heavenly Father that pursues us even when we're wondering. Isn't that good news? Yeah, it's super good news. And then uh, two weeks ago, uh, we, we uh, talked about confrontation in our congregation. We, we learned how Jesus' desire was that we would confront sin in a way that benefits the sinner, the watching world, and the rest of the congregation. So today's passage, why do, I, why do I spend, you know, two and a half minutes of my time talking about what we've been learning? Well, I think because today's passage fits right in that stream. I want to get us thinking with, about what we've been thinking. And it's, it's the teaching that Jesus has chosen to culminate his sermon on the congregation. So you that are teachers, you know that you're supposed to end with something that's really important, right? Because you want people to remember Typically, what people only remember the first and the last thing that you say, right? Is that I hope that's not true, but sometimes I think it is true for sure. And so Jesus seems to be saying that it's a true experience of God's grace that we really need. This is what transforms us, his grace, into the kind of church that he's looking for. The end of the sermon is this important message on grace. And so we're going to learn this morning. Uh, once again, what it means to be a people of grace. See, freely receiving grace and, and freely giving grace to those around us, is, it's a hallmark of the church. We cannot be a, a church without grace. Grace is the magic sauce. And uh, yeah, like I just wanted to say, like, let's be, a, we, we will be a church where grace is in place. We may have to fight for that at times. We may have to wrestle with that at times. But we want to be a church where grace is in place. Look, nothing is more important than that we get a hold of this idea of God's grace towards us. We want to be a church where grace is in place. And so this morning, we're going to, we're going to walk through this passage as we look to answer the questions of, what does God's forgiveness look like? And what does that mean for me? And then finally, why? The why question is so powerful when it comes to motivation. And I know that part of what, I'm, what I do every Sunday is teach. I tell you the what. But man, the why is so important. Without the why, you don't really have a reason to, uh, to do the teaching, to do the thing that you've learned. And so why would we want to forgive like God forgives? So I'm going to talk a little bit about what forgiveness looks like, and I also want to talk about why we would want to forgive like God forgives. And, and when we're finished, it would be my hope that you have a greater understanding of Jesus' teaching and why it's so important. But I don't want to stop there. I don't want to stop until uh, we've had a real encounter with this teaching, until we've let the teaching like marinate over us to the point where we don't just leave with head knowledge, but we leave with like heart transformation. Do you get what I'm saying? Forgiveness is not just an intellectual subject. Forgiveness is a subject that needs to be worked out. We don't just want to know God's word around here, do we? We want to do what God's word says. And so I'll conclude by, by offering you an opportunity uh, to search your heart. If you're wondering why the blue barrel, the ugly blue barrel, as my wife called it, is uh, up here, um, I, I want to make space in our time for response uh, to, to come forward and like do something 
that'll help us actually forgive. You know, sometimes like when you're just sitting in the seats, you don't like really like you got to take a step. Right. And so I just wanted to encourage you and I'm going to I'm going to pray for us now even. Um, in fact, just pray with me. Uh, Lord, we um, we just want to ask that you would speak to us right now. Like that you would truly speak to the bottom of our hearts, Lord. And, and then as you're speaking to us, God, we ask that you would, um, yeah, would you not leave us alone? We know that we, if we're honest, we carry unforgiveness in different ways, sometimes even in ways that we're not fully aware of. But we, we just ask this morning, Lord, would you not leave us alone? Would you search our hearts, reveal to us any way in which we could grow in your grace, Lord? Amen. So yeah, as, as I'm talking, I just, I would encourage you just to open your heart and, and be willing to ask yourself the question, is there any forgiveness that I'm holding back? Is there somebody that I need to forgive? And then, and then just be ready before we even receive communion this morning to do that work, you know? So this passage, um, it, it starts with uh, a question. Okay, Peter, again, Peter's one of my favorite characters in scripture. I love Peter, but I don't think that this is one of Peter's finest moments. Peter, uh, Peter comes to Jesus, and, and like this is one of the reasons why I believe that the Bible is true, because the disciples are not always portrayed very like glowingly in Scripture, you know, which gives me great faith. Because like if they, if the disciples were making this up, they wouldn't make themselves look so stupid. You know what I'm saying? So, anyways, here's Peter. He he comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times? Shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I think, uh, I think Peter uh, was in some ways asking the question, how often should I forgive? Remember, Jesus has just taught that there's a point at which you disassociate yourself with an unrepentant sinner. And so here Peter's asking, well, okay, so how much can I forgive? How often should I forgive? So maybe there's a way in which he's got a legit question, but I think there's also a way in which he's trying to impress Jesus with his high level of uh, forgiveness, you know? Peter says seven times. Should I forgive him seven times? As if that's a really impressive number. I guess evidently at, at that time, the rabbinical standard for forgiveness was three times. So they, they thought, they taught, those, the rabbis taught in that day that you would forgive three times, and if someone still you know, did not change their ways or repent sufficiently, then a fourth time, you didn't, you, you didn't owe them a fourth, uh, a fourth forgiveness. And so Peter doubles the three, and he adds one more, and oh, what do you know? He got to the holy number seven. This is teacher's pet Peter coming to Jesus uh, with this question, air quotes, for the podcasters. All two of you. <laughs> Presumably, this, this limit that Peter's trying to impose is because, you know, you don't want to get taken advantage of, do you? Right? Like, there's a point at which you've got to disassociate, right? So Peter doubles the three, and he, he adds ones. But uh, even Peter's best attempt falls flat in comparison to Jesus's forgiveness and grace. You see, Peter thinks God's forgiveness has limits. And Jesus quickly corrects him. If we go to verse 22, Jesus answers Peter, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. So Jesus says not seven, but 77. Maybe some of your translations say 70 times seven. Any of your translations say that? I'm going to go with 77 because that's what my translation said. <clears throat> and I think there's some significance to that number 77. Because if you, if you go back to Genesis 4, there's a guy named Lamech. Lamech was a descendant of Cain. Cain was the one, the brother that killed Abel in the field. And there's this little poem in Genesis 4 um, that references Lamech's hunger for vengeance. And Lamech says that he, he, uh, he wants to measure his vengeance by not seven, but 77. This is Lamech's way of saying, I deserve vengeance. So I think this number 77 that Jesus gives to Peter is significant. Remember, these people would have known the Torah forward and backwards. I'm sure Peter knew what Jesus was referring to. Jesus is saying, no, your, your 
uh, thirst for vengeance should be opposite of Lamech's. Lamech was hungry for vengeance. And you're going to be hungry for forgiveness. So the idea is that we want to be opposite of Lamech. Not vengeance, but forgiveness. Jesus is saying in, in his response to Peter that God's forgiveness is as limitless as was Lamech's vengeance. Opposite land. This is the upside down way of Jesus. God's forgiveness is perfect. Did you notice the significance of the number seven? Many of you, I mean, we probably all are aware that seven is like a a heavenly number. It was seen as the divine number, the perfect number, which is why it's so ironic what Peter came to Jesus with. God's forgiveness is perfect. It's it's infinite. There's no end. It's a perfect complement to vengeance. You see, typically when we're sinned against, we seek vengeance. What's the Liam Neeson uh, movie? What's it called? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Taken. That movie's all about vengeance. Liam Neeson getting after the people who have perpetrated a crime against his daughter. This is not Jesus' way, even though at times it's our way. God's way of handling offense is to conquer vengeance via grace. Grace is God's great weapon against vengeance. Unlimited forgiveness. This is the way of our Father in heaven. Unlimited forgiveness. It got me thinking, you know, I mean, Peter's best attempts at impressive forgiveness pale into comparison to God's standard, don't they? It, it, it reminds, uh, reminded me a little bit of uh, any Red Robin fans in here. Okay, none, none of you like Red Robin, the restaurant? Okay, well, I really like Red Robin. And, you know, I remember when like gourmet burgers weren't a thing. And Red Robin was like the place to get like gourmet burgers, right? But even, even with that, the real reason to go to Red Robin was not the gourmet burgers. It was the bottomless fries, right? So I'm here to say this morning, not only is this a church where grace is in place, this is a church where bottomless fries remind us of the forgiveness of God. So if you forget, how many times? Just think, bottomless french fries. This is what Jesus is teaching about God's grace. So then Jesus goes on to tell a story. Peter asks a question, and Jesus, as he so often does, tells a story because that's just what he does, right? He uses stories to illustrate what his kingdom is like. And this is no, um, this is no different. And in this parable, there's this king. Uh, the king represents God the Father, and the servant represents you, me, any of us. And so we've got the story of this merciful king pitted up against the story of this unmerciful servant. And here's what Jesus says. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, or maybe in your translations, 10,000 talents. That's the Greek. Anyway, this man was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So a few observations about this story of the uh, merciful king. Number one, the debt is unpayably huge. It kind of gets lost a bit in translation. But did you know that in the Greek, 10,000 is about the biggest number that they could possibly mention? So you can't go any higher than 10,000 in Greek. It's like, it's sort of like saying infinity. There's no number higher, evidently, in in the Greek. And uh, what is a talent? I I did some math on this uh, today. 10,000 talents is what this story says. So a a talent was a really large sum of money. Um, Supposedly, it uh, it was about what a laborer would make in 20 years worth of work. So this is a laborer, right? This isn't like a a high-end white-collar worker. So 20 years worth of wages for a laborer, okay? So I was doing my math, and I thought, okay, well, today, the minimum wage, let's just go with that, right? The minimum wage today is, what, $15 an hour or so, right? So I think if you do the math on that, that's $30,000 a year, okay, Um, times times 20, right? Because... One talent is 20 years worth of wage. So that's uh, 600,000. Is my math still right? I'm doing, doing okay? Hopefully. I'll just go fast and you won't check me. 
So 600,000 times how many talents were there? 10,000. This is 6 billion. This servant owed a heck of a lot of money. 6 billion. In fact, the, uh, the commentators uh, that I read this week basically just said, it, it's as if he said the servant owed a zillion dollars. Like just a makeup number. This number's like infinitely large. The debt was absolutely enormous, which makes it sort of funny that this servant thought he had any ability to pay the debt on his own. So we got to pay attention to that just because all the numbers and the figures in this story we're going to find are like incredibly outsized. Super high debt, super low ability to pay the debt. This labor, imagine, imagine someone working for minimum wage having to pay back $6 billion. It's, it's like an infinite number, isn't it? So all the stories... Uh, or all the numbers in this story are outsized. The, the debt's ridiculous. But one thing we've got to know about that is that the king's ability to forgive is then also ridiculous. You can't out-sin. You can't out-owe the grace of God. This is good news. <clears throat> now, if the king is representative of God and, and the servant representative of just one of us, I mean, think about that for a second. If this servant just represents, like this servant owed Six billion, a zillion dollars. That was just one. Imagine the debt that all of us combined owe. So this is a picture of the outsized grace of God. Look, the debt that we celebrated last week, the debt that Jesus paid by his death, is massive. It takes unpayable to unthinkable levels. You really can't even comprehend the debt that's on display in this story. And here's the thing, you guys, we're, 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 not, we're not just in a little bit of a pickle in our relationship to God. Just like this servant was not just in like a tiny little pickle before the king. We've outdone ourselves here. Our problem is outsized. And the gospel tells us the truth about the problem that we have between us and God. Now, a little side note here, I you also notice that the, the first ramification was that this, this man's, the servant's uh, family was going to be used to pay the debt. I thought it was interesting to note that our sin, when left unpaid, impacts not just us, but our family. Not just our wives, or our spouses, but our children, and potentially even our children's children. <laughs> Either that or evidently this man's family is really valuable. I was thinking, oh, maybe my family, would they be worth $6 billion? I don't know. They're quite <laughs> worth $6 billion. I mean, they're pretty cool. $6 billion's a lot. So here's the deal. Not only are we in debt like this servant, but we don't have the funds to pay it back. And getting thrown in jail is not going to make us any more able to pay it back. The second observation is that the servant was evidently unconcerned about his debt. Notice the servant didn't go to the king to pay his debt. It says the servant or the king brought the servant into him. And isn't this the way that we can be with our own sin? Anyone ever like, I mean, maybe, okay, let me just say, I've had a time where I was like minding my own business and not really aware of an area of sin in my life that was hurting people around me. And it wasn't until I got called to the carpet like this servant that I actually recognized my sin. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but sometimes we're not even aware of the sin that we're living in. We're not even aware of the size of the debt, and we need to be brought to repentance by a king-like figure. Matthew Henry, the commentator, he says this, sinners are commonly careless about the pardon of their sins until they come under the arrest of some awaking word, some startling providence or approaching death. This is like uh, the David situation where the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, you're the man who did that with Bathsheba. It was you. We should probably pray and ask that the Lord would bring people to confront us in our sin. Does that bring a little bit more levity, a little bit more clarity to the passage we studied two weeks ago about confrontation? It's really loving to come to a brother or sister in the Lord and confront them in their sin. So we've got to understand the enormity of our depravity. The third thing, the third observation is that the servant's response, uh, what does he do? He, he falls down and he begs for patience. I think this is like the automatic human response, right? As soon as you get into trouble that you cannot get yourself out of, you start begging, right? 
the cop pulls you over and it's like, hey, I'm just headed to my grandmother's house. She's, you, know, you know what I'm saying? We, we, we start trying to beg. We start trying to engage uh, the pity of the person who's bringing us to justice. And the servant's first response was just to fall down and to beg for patience. This is super interesting. He owes a zillion dollars worth of debt. And yet his response is just, hey, just give me some time and I'll pay you back. Anyone ever acted like that towards God? Oh, don't, God, don't worry. I'm going to, I'll rectify this. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do better from here on out. I, I won't ever do it again. I'll pay you back, God. I'm going to serve you with the rest of my life. The servant goes right away to performance to try and pay back his debt. It's a really powerful example, uh, you know, of how uh, Paul says it like this, the Apostle Paul. He says that our best efforts are what? Like filthy rags. <laughs> this guy on his knees before the king, I know I owe you a zillion dollars and I'm just an, an average laborer, but just give me time. I'll pay you back. There's no way he could have paid him back. There's no way his performance would ever add up to make right his debt. The next observation is, is just that the, the servant uh, gets more than what he asked for. Check this out. The, uh, the servant asked for patience and then a chance to repay the debt, right? That's all the servant was asking for. Just give me time, be patient with me, and I'll pay you back, right? The king grants him instead full amnesty, a complete remission of the debt. There's a picture of our heavenly father, the forgiveness of the king outsized the request of the servant. I think that, um, you know, in a story full of outsized details, it's the mercy of the king that outsizes them all. God's grace is really more than we could ever ask or imagine. I think that's the truth of this story here. So the first part of the story is about the character of God, the father, the, the king whose mercy is without limit. Uh, but the story has a second part, as I already said. That the first part is the forgiving king. The second part is the unmerciful servant. And, and to be honest, the second part of the story is kind of disturbing. Let's take a look. In verse 28, it says that, But when the, that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Our story gets off on the wrong foot, this second story. The first word, but, that's one T, but, B-U-T, but when the servant went out. This should tell us right away, the servant's response is not what we would expect. What would you expect the servant to do in light of the grace that he's just been shown? Give grace back, right? Isn't that what you would expect? But that's not what the servant does. Though he just uh, had a zillion dollar debt forgiven, he cannot see it to forgive the debt of this fellow servant. And take a look at this number. So that's, uh, in my translation, it's a, a hundred silver coins. I think that's what I said. In your translation, what does it say? A hundred denarii? Is that what your translation says maybe? A hundred denarii is, is the Greek uh, here. So versus 10,000 talents, we've got a hundred denarii. This is about one, uh, um, one day's wage. One day's wage for a laborer. The difference in the size of these debts is enormous. When we think about the sin of those around us, any sin that gets us frustrated, we ought to think of the size of our debt versus the size of the debt that's been offended against us. So then what does the servant do? It says that the other servant, the fellow servant, verse 29, he, and this is like uh, amazingly similar. It's like exactly the same of how the first servant responded. The, the fellow servant fell to his knees, it says, and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now remember, small debt. This servant probably could have paid that debt back. Unlike the first servant, this debt was relatively small. And we see the same words, but there's another but in the story. It says in verse 30, but he, the first servant, refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The second but of the unmerciful servant reminds us that obedience doesn't say but, doesn't make excuses. Obedience says yes. It does not say, but what if this or what if that? 
There's no qualification. Our butts uh, look often to justify our behavior and claim our own vengeance. But says, but don't you know what's been done to me? That's what you should hear when you see the word but, not once but twice in this story. But don't you know what's been done to me? Our our butts say, God, I know you were merciful to me, but you don't understand what's been done to me. So then what happens? What does the master do? Because now the other servants have seen what's happened and they go right away and tell the master, this is like total schoolyard incident right here. The other kids, the servants, they see what's happened. They know this is not right. What has just happened is not right. This guy got forgiven a huge debt and now he's being really unforgiving. This is not right. It says in verse 32, then the master called the servant in a second time now. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. The next observation I want to make is, look, the the king's mercy in the first story, it had no prior conditions, right? He paid back the zillion dollar debt, not because of anything that the servant did. He didn't make him work for a few weeks. He didn't say, well, since you've been really good, the only prior condition was begging. Please give me a chance. The king's mercy had no prior conditions, but evidently it did have expected future conditions. The king gave grace. He forgave the debt freely, but evidently he expected a certain type of behavior would follow. Jean-Louis Bernard says this. This is some theologian. He's French. I thought this was smart. Love for our brother is, is not a condition of salvation, but it is the required consequence of it. Love for our brother is not a condition of salvation. You get grace freely. Your merit does not earn the grace of God, but the grace of God ought to transform your heart so that you become a giver of grace. This is the the truth and the power of this story. You guys, salvation produces mercy. We've talked a lot about how there's this tension between what God does freely for us and what we do because of what we've been given freely. Salvation is unmerited. It's an act of sheer mercy. And salvation produces mercy. Does your salvation produce mercy? That's the question. Does the debt that you've been forgiven, does the debt that I've been forgiven produce grace in me? Because where where mercy is not produced by my faith, evidently, judgment follows. The biblical account makes one thing super clear. Sinners who freely receive salvation will be transformed into free givers of grace to others. It's not, our, uh, it's not our production of that grace that earns our salvation initially. It's the salvation that produces our mercy. God's grace, when freely received, changes us. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. That's the magic sauce. We can forgive others because we've been forgiven. An insurmountable debt has been paid on our behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the foundational truth of God's love for us. You couldn't earn it. I couldn't earn it. He's given it freely. He's paid my debt. And if I've truly received that grace, there's only one option for me. To go and give it out to those around me. This is really powerful. It's kind of hard to hear. Have you, have you thought about yet a time or maybe even now a way in which you're holding back forgiveness. And I would just ask you have, you, have you truly experienced the free grace? Have you received the free grace of God? Look, grace is the start of our story. It's not the end of our story. We've been given grace. We've been transformed to live a different way. I believe this is how God changes the world around us. He gives free grace, and we go extend that grace. To others, Did you know that the, the mark of the early church, the one thing, well, there were two things historians say that made them totally distinct from the Roman culture that they lived in. 
Number one was their sexual ethic. They believed one man, one woman. That was like way different than the world that they were living in. But number two, they forgave each other. They forgave one another. Forgiveness is foundational. We want to be a church where grace is in place. Do you remember uh, the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Here in this story, we read, unblessed are the unmerciful. Our mercy flows from the mercy we've received. And God is merciful. How merciful is God? A zillion dollars worth. The debt was unpayable. God is merciful, but God is not mocked. A person reaps what a person sows. That's Galatians 6, 7. Divine forgiveness without human transformation becomes divine judgment. And it, it brings me to an interesting point, you know. Hey, like some of us sometimes live as if we can put our faith in Jesus without following Jesus' ways. But look, discipleship to Jesus' ways is not optional. I think that's what we learn in this story. Following Jesus' ways is not an option. It's not like, oh, some people come to saving faith. Yay, they get to go to heaven. And then they get to choose if they actually follow Jesus' ways. Real faith follows. We don't just get saved and then live however we want because, well, grace. Anybody ever had a friend or someone tell them that? If we don't forgive, we're not saved. That's the message of the story. This is like, this is a heavy passage because I think we could all think of ways we've withheld forgiveness. Do you know what I'm saying? I believe, I think I said this last week that, look, the, the, the truth of the gospel is not just that Jesus came to earth to die for us so that we could go to heaven. It's deeper than that. The truth is also that Jesus came to earth to die the death that we deserved to rise to new life so that heaven would come down into us. And when we forgive, we bring God's grace into the world. This is how we change the world around us. Look, the early Christians started a movement, the most powerful movement the world has ever seen. And I would argue to the death with anybody about that. There is no movement in human history more prominent, more important, more central than the move of the early church. And how did they did it? How did they do it? Sorry. They forgave each other. They forgave one another. This is powerful stuff. This is how you bring redemption, reconciliation to the community around you. I got a little excited on that point. I got another point, and that's this. We learn in the story that unforgiveness is like torture. It's like bondage. It's like being imprisoned. Sometimes, I don't know if you can relate, I get really like nasty on the inside. And I think that if I don't forgive somebody, that they'll pay. You know what I'm saying? I think that I'll show them, I just won't forgive them. Who pays when we fail to forgive? We pay, don't we? Unforgiveness doesn't hurt the offender so much as it hurts us. Unforgiveness is friendly fire. It's like uh, an own goal. It's a crime against oneself. It's self-destruction. The only one punished by our unforgiveness is us. This is the why. Why should you forgive? So that you wouldn't be in bondage any longer. So that you wouldn't be continually tortured by your own sense of vengeance. We should forgive so that we can live free lives. Who wants to be free? Jesus came to set us free, not just to bind us to a new set of rules that we can't follow. We've been set free. We've got to forgive. to. Exp I was just thinking like, and, and I don't know, like, because I think sometimes like I'm pretty aware of ways like, dang it, I'm still stuck in this way. And I have friends around me. Some of you sometimes come to me. Oh, I'm struggling with this. I don't know how I'll change. I don't know if I can change. I wonder if there's a way in which our unforgiveness is keeping us bound. And I would just invite us to consider like, how could we get free by just forgiving someone that we haven't been able to forgive? The last point is that uh, forgiveness is uh, not just mechanical. We learn in this story that forgiveness is uh, really deep, a deep act. It says in verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
anybody have kids and struggle with this? Like we try to teach our kids to say, I forgive you, you know, reconciliation. I forgive you. That is not forgiveness from the heart, is it? This passage calls us not just to words, but to a deep, deep, deep level of forgiveness. You, You have to mean it from the bottom of your heart. And in many ways, the deep work of forgiveness, it's, it's the work of meaning it from the bottom of your heart. How do you forgive? You mean it from the bottom of your heart. You got to feel it really deep. And I think you could spend your whole life mastering the skill of meaning it from the bottom of your heart. I'm sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. A few additional thoughts on forgiveness. Did you know that, that forgiveness is under attack in our current culture? Our current culture is really excited about justice. You reap what you sow, you, consequences, payback, right? Our, our current culture is super aware of justice. I would say overly aware of justice. So I wanted to give you some additional thoughts to, to share, I guess, maybe like what forgiveness isn't, you know? Forgiveness is this, but it's not that. Forgiveness is not the same as saying that's okay. What you did is okay. It's different. Sometimes I, at school, I try to, this is like really hard, but with non-Christian sixth graders, you know, trying to get them to forgive one another when they've had a moment of like, Maggie's shaking her head. She knows exactly what I'm talking about. You that teach. And, and sometimes what the student will say is like, it's okay. In fact, that's probably the most common uh, response I get to a student telling another student, I'm sorry. They just excuse it. That's okay. And I have to remind, no, it wasn't okay that Johnny kicked you. That's not okay. You can say, I forgive you. But saying it's just okay, that doesn't honor the significance of the infraction. It's okay is is not how we have to respond to an offense. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness acknowledges the offense. That's really important. The second thing is that forgiveness, um, it can be paired with disassociation. So we learned in the, um, the last passage that we studied, there comes a point when someone will not repent that the only recourse is to disassociate yourself with that person. And, and the world needs to hear this. You can forgive somebody without choosing to continue to be around them. Look, there are people who in their unrepentance are not safe to be around. If you've experienced abuse, I'm here to tell you today, you can, you can forgive your abuser without running back to your abuser, without being with your abuser again. Forgiveness uh, can be paired with disassociation if the sinner is unrepentant or abusive. You can forgive without maintaining relationship. We've kind of got that wrong in the church, I think, too. Sometimes, like, through forgiveness, we've allowed predators to stay in our walls. Not here uh, that I know of at this time, but you get what I'm saying. In the larger church, and I think it's been, it's been a real blot, a real stain on the church's reputation in the world because we've allowed people who said, I'm sorry, to enter back in when they weren't trustworthy. Forgiveness can be paired with disassociation. You can choose to separate from someone who's unrepentant and still do the work of forgiveness. You can forgive even if they're not repentant. The next thing is just that forgiveness is not a feeling. You will probably never feel like forgiving. The way we've been wired is to want justice. The way we've been wired is often to want wrath. You know this again, if you have kids, you see this. I don't have to convince you of this. Look, here's the fact. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's based on fact. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. The next point is just that forgiveness is rarely a one and done act. I don't know if you've ever tried before to forgive somebody. Some people would say, I, I hear this language a lot. I just, I just cannot forgive that person for what they did to me. And I would just give you hope. Like if you feel like that, like I, I prayed the prayer, I said the words, I forgive you. And yet in my heart, I'm not forgiving them. Very normal. You're very normal. Forgiveness is, is not often a one and done affair. It can be at times. I think God gives us the grace at times, depending on the magnitude of the forgiveness, our proximity to the person, their level of, of repentance. But we've got to know that forgiveness is a fight. Sometimes we expect stuff to be easy and then we get really surprised when it's hard. Forgiveness is not really a one and done act. It's got to be fought for oftentimes day by day. What does the Lord's prayer teach us? Lord, give us today what I need. Give me today my daily bread. Forgive me as I forgive those who have sinned against me. The one prayer that Jesus taught us 
included forgiveness. And I think on a daily basis, the last point is just that you can have unforgiveness against someone, even if they haven't sinned against you. Have you ever wrestled with that? Sometimes we take offense to things that people have done to us that aren't necessarily even sin. They may be completely unaware of what they've done uh, against us. And we can feel hurt and we can carry uh, unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness. I wanted to just share these words with you. I, I learned these from a counselor. They've been really helpful for me. Maybe they'll be helpful for you. But just to say things like this, when you feel like you're, you're offended for some reason, saying it this way is a really good way to confront uh, offense. I'm not blaming you. This probably is more about me than it is about you. But when this happened, it made me feel like that. Like sometimes we have to forgive people who haven't even sinned against us. We have to release people to God's grace because we've been hurt for whatever reason. It may not even be something that they've directly done to us. So those are just some additional thoughts uh, about forgiveness. And look, I know you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you, Noel. You know, I know you're right. You, I, I, didn't, I think nobody learned anything new in terms of you should forgive people, right? Probably everyone believed that when they walked into the room um, this morning. So then the question is, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And hopefully the why has already helped you understand, you know, given you motivation. But I want to give just two points of application uh, this morning. And the first thing uh, is that if, if you're going to be a forgiving person, you got to want it. You got to want to forgive. Again, hopefully the why matters for you, but you're going to have to uh, want it. Uh, Matthew 9.13, Jesus cited Hosea 6 when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. My question for you today, do you desire mercy? Not just to, uh, to be shown mercy. We all want mercy. But to show others mercy, do you desire mercy? You have to want it. Where there's a will, there's a way. Been saying that for years now. Where there's a will, there's a way. Part of finding the, the uh, ability to forgive is wanting to forgive. Do you want mercy? Where there's a will, there's a way. If you want it, you will get it. And these are like profound words. Whatever you want in life. And I believe this is biblically true. Whatever you want in your life, you will get. If you want relationship with God more than anything else, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's yours to be had. If you want vengeance, you will get vengeance and you will get what comes with your heart of vengeance. Torture, bondage, imprisonment. You get what you want, period. Do you want to receive mercy? Do you want to be set free? Do you want right relationship with God and with others? Or do you want to be the judge? Do you want to enforce justice? Do you want your pound of flesh? Do you want your vengeance? Do you want like Lamech 77 times over vengeance? Do you want to be justified in your own eyes? You got to want it. Jesus said, I desire mercy not sacrifice. Do you desire mercy? And then number two, if you want it, you got to ask for it. You got to ask for it. This is such an emotionally healthy skill, asking for what you need. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Struggling with unforgiveness? Have you thought about asking God <laughs> to give you the gift of mercy? You have not because you ask not. Jesus said, when you pray, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, God. Your way, your will be done. Not my way, but your way. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Pray that way. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So I asked you at the beginning of this sermon to consider someone God is asking you to forgive. Maybe it's someone you've never wanted to forgive. Maybe it's someone you've been trying to forgive. I don't know who came to your heart. It might be your dad. It might be your spouse. It might be a coworker. There's even a chance the person you need to forgive is yourself. I believe some of you need to forgive yourselves this morning. You need to give yourself 
the same grace that God has given you. But we're going to take a minute to put our heart into action this morning, and, and I think Jesus teaches that. We want to put our hearts into action. And so I've set up this station, and Jake's going to come back up here, and we're going to sing. Um, Jake, let's sing one song. Let's sing just Amazing Grace. Um, and then um, as you come forward, if God's put someone on your heart, this is like, I think, pretty simple. All you have to do is walk on up and take a pen. You write the person or person's name on this piece of paper. And no one else has to see this. You can fold it up. But once you've done that, I want you just to release it into the trash can. Now, I wanted to have a candle and like burn it. You know, I thought that would be cool, but I don't want to burn the building down. But look, you guys, the act of forgiveness is just releasing it's letting it go. It's saying, God, vengeance be yours. I'm choosing to let go. So I want you to like, make it significant. Write it down with your hand. There's something kinesthetic. I'm going to write the name of this person that I need to forgive. And don't question if you should have something against them. Sometimes we do that, right? We, we don't justify the hurt that's in our heart. We say, oh, I shouldn't have a problem with this person. No, you do. I don't know if you should or you shouldn't, but you do. So you need to forgive them. Get free. Write it down, put your hand to action, and then drop it in the basket. And then after you've done that, and only after you've done that, and if God brings nothing to your heart, if you feel like, I did all my forgiveness yesterday, Noel, I'm good, that's fine too. That would be awesome if you're like every, every morning you, you perform the act of giving mercy. So that's fine too. But make sure that you don't come and receive the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus until you've done business with God. God de demands mercy, not sacrifice. Let's be a people of mercy.